Good afternoon. Welcome to Side Dish, your podcast for Longmont. All the stuff you want to know and very little that you need to know. I am Eric Ozempa. And I am Brady Stettle. Hey, Brady. How you doing? How you been? Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. Uh, yeah. yeah. Living through these troubled times, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. How, uh, <laughs> did anything exciting for the weekend? Or uh, Yeah. Well, let's see. This weekend. What did we do this weekend? It was nice. Oh, I started building a router table. So that's cool. <laughs> so a router i'm sorry router table Router table yeah so you, you fix the router underneath it you, you do your woodworking you know, yeah yeah so you can make wood. like little kind of cool like cuts and that sort of thing i remember yeah, yeah. kind of wood, wood shop now did yeah. you have to take wood shop in high school or anything like that yeah i was fortunate enough that it was still around when i was uh in school they were, they were cutting all kinds of stuff when i was going through high school yeah. junior high yeah but you so. must have been good at it so you're still like a woodworker <laughs> i was not very good at it and and uh <laughs> Got me kind of hooked on it was uh, my father-in-law does uh, woodworking. He makes some really nice stuff. He's got a really nice shop. And um, one year he said, uh, for Christmas, let's do this. I mean, you go back for a week or whatever it is. And so we took uh, quite a bit of it and worked in his shop. And he has much, much nicer tools than I do. But uh, it's fun. It's like a nice hobby. It's kind of spendy to get into. It's not like a low entry or a low bar for entry by any means. Um, But you, you... you work with the tools you got until you surpass its capabilities. You know, once your capabilities are greater than the tools' capabilities, and you can upgrade and have fun with that. And um, yeah, so I make whatever. I made a couple pieces of furniture, nothing high end. Um, I want to build some outdoor furniture. It's like my big goal. So I'm I'm setting up for that. So I'm I'm adding shop fixtures and uh, doing that kind of stuff. So what a like two days, just like. Kelsey came down and she's like, are you going to come up for dinner? Or? <laughs> it's like, oh, it's a uh, quarter to eight. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, <laughs> so you, um, I'm just trying to think of like, did you have, what was your requirement wood shop? Like I had to build a corner shelf, which was pretty disastrous. Yeah, I built wood shop. I think I built a, one year we built like a wooden box, you know, the hinge of the top flips open. And I can't remember what my project was, uh, I think in eighth grade. But um, I remember just not having the patience for it when I was that old. I just I remember it being just too much. Like you're, yeah. you're supposed to fix. Um, I liked art stuff more. I took ceramics because I had a free, free one when I was a senior. You know, like you you fill up all your credits. I like to take that. I thought that was great. Um, I wish that there was more uh, accessible kind of stuff like that for the public because I've looked a couple times. But uh, there's all sorts of cool stuff if you watch the the city of Longmont's pamphlet. But a lot of those things only show up once. So I saw there was a uh, and like an upholstery class once and I sort of laughed like who would want to take upholstery and then I started doing woodworking again and it's like I really like to make my own cushions because most of the cushions you go to buy at Home Depot are garbage <laughs> it's like I should have taken that upholstery class no I'm not gonna do that no no I think it'd be fun like I like I like I like building stuff because a lot of times I do stuff that's at the computer and you write and you like you're building stuff that way but it's nice to have a physical thing that you construct I'm not great with maintenance stuff I don't really like once my lawn is established for the year, I don't like mowing it anymore. I like the process of building it up. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I, I like that. So anyway, yeah. uh, what else is going on around here? Uh, what, what do you got? What, well, I was going to say for me, knowledge? it was kind of like a, an adventure. I mean, I went out and uh, I had lunch. I had a lunch meeting last week, which was crazy at the pump house. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely crazy. And then my wife and I went out to dinner on saturday night and that was that was pretty exciting but you know that's that's kind of the you know we're, we're one of the few that was kind of braving um yeah. the outside world and i you know i i don't know what 
what people are thinking as far as like, are they thinking it's safe? Are they thinking it's not safe? Kind of wanted to get your perspective on that. What did you, what, where, well, where are you? I, I still play things pretty cautious. Um, there's no need for me to go out more. I'm a pretty patient guy when it comes to this sort of thing. I'm, I'm tolerant of this. So I, I figure if I don't really need to go out, then I don't. But I've started going out to the hardware store more often and to, you know, to make purchases that I've been delaying because yeah. of this. So yeah. I, I had to go to Lowe's for basically building this table. And um, I went and then I had to go back, which was a drag. But, you know, it's like, okay, I went back and I didn't feel too bad. Um, people are okay at distancing. People are wearing masks. And I've been watching the Colorado um, COVID case data uh, to see what that's looking like. And it's actually leveled off pretty good. So we've still got steady cases coming in. But even with things sort of opening up a little bit more and people going out, it stayed pretty flat. I think if we all went back to the way it was before this all started, we'd be in trouble. So I don't think I'm going to go out to eat. Like I didn't really go out to eat at a place very often anyway. Um, but I have still been going to restaurants to pick food up, bring it back, eat on the back patio, eat while you're watching reruns of Star Trek or something. Um, so I think, you know, I like this as a step. I think it's good to do this incrementally and say, look, if this sticks then maybe we can loosen up some more, maybe we can keep doing research and figure that out. So um, I'm heartened. I'd like to see people make it back to work. I'd like to see things, um, head back a bit toward normalcy because boy oh boy it is uh it's a mess out there right now it is and you know it's gonna be so difficult you know we talked about this with main street and um it does look like they're actually going to block off a couple of lanes of traffic there to allow for the restaurants to have a little bit more space between mm -hmm. um i think it's july through august maybe september is what okay. i hear but that that will be really helpful i think for some businesses and um so I, you know, it'll just really depend on what we're going to, what we're going to see. So it's, right. uh, it's going to be an interesting summer business uh, schedule. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, but then we, uh, I don't know. Um, it, 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 it'll just be fascinating to see what's going to thrive and what's not going to thrive. And um, that's, what's really disappointing. Yeah. Us in all this environment. It's like, there's some places that are going to do really well and some places that are not. So. Yeah. Somebody said their Etsy store went up like, Oh, Chad, Chad said uh, e-bike sales, like the company that he wanted to buy an e-bike through recently, their sales just went through the roof yeah. up yeah. by like 300%. But then, I mean, stores like Marshall's and what was the other one that was talking about closing? Oh, the theaters, AMC yeah. theaters are saying that they might have to declare bankruptcy. And that makes sense. You can't do that. And then expect um, all of these businesses to thrive. So I, I hope that there's a middle ground to say some of this stuff can get used. Uh, businesses that we're doing well, but we're absolutely, I mean, no revenue at all for months and months. They're going to need some sort of support. So, yeah. Um, well, I'd hate to interrupt real quickly, but we have joined, been joined by our special guest here, Mike Butler, the chief of public safety for the city of Longmont. And Mike, I hope I got your title there. Correct. Perfect. Uh, yeah. So how are you doing, Mike? Um, I know you're uh, getting close to retirement here. It's hard to believe. I can't believe that. So. I, you definitely can say I'm closer to the end than I am the beginning. <laughs> like July. <I, laughs> hey, um, I don't know if you you met my uh, co-host here, Brady Steffel, but he is uh, he's a he's relatively new to Longmont, and I think um, probably represents a little bit more about you know people who want to know what the community policing model or the police department model is that you have really, um, I guess, had flourish here. And it's really a model, I think, for the rest of the country. And could you describe to him a little bit about your philosophy and what, what you've all done at the police department? Or the, sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, so hey, Brady, nice meeting you. Yeah, Welcome Brady, to Lone Mind. Um, yeah, thank you. So, well, first of all, a little bit about me because I don't know who else is on the line here. Is it just us three? Or it's just us. It? So we record this as a podcast. So uh, okay. we have, you know, maybe two people listen in every week. I'm kidding. No, we actually more than that. But yeah, so yeah. So I, I've lived in Longmont for over 40 years, and this is where I raised five daughters. And so I have lots of friends, lots of acquaintances. Um, I've been the public safety chief for like the last 11 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that oversees police fire and uh, a division that's important in this conversation. It's a division called the uh, Community Health and Resiliency. And I may talk a little bit about that, but it's a kind of a manifestation of our own evolution into a different um, kind of policing uh, that we've been doing in our community for a few years. So, so anyway, our, let me just start off by saying, here's our motto. Our police department's motto is policing in partnership with the people. And that partnership um, can mean a lot of things, but it means being accountable. It means being honest. It means being transparent. It means joint accountability. Um, and, and so, and it also means the right to say no sometimes. And so uh, whenever you're in a partnership, uh, anyone has the right to say no in that partnership. If you can't say no, your yes doesn't mean all that much. But, <laughs> but anyway, um, so we've, you know, you, you mentioned uh, community policing, Eric, and I don't use the phrase community policing. I, I don't use the phrase, by the way, law enforcement. The vast majority of police departments use their, that phrase, law enforcement, and I think it really minimizes and pigeonholes what our capacities really are, what our roles can be, because we're much more than enforcing laws. And unfortunately, a lot of police departments around the country, and I, you know, you hear a lot about police reform today, and, and, I, and I, I'm with it. I think there is, there is there, police reform is necessary. But that's only part of the, the, the scope of things right now in terms of trying to get beyond where we're at in our country. But uh, police reform is necessary. And I'm not going to suggest or recommend that anybody do anything that we haven't done. Uh, but we have to rethink, recalibrate, reset what we're doing and how we're doing it. And um, the basis for that, in my mind, well, you, you call partnership, but it's how you connect with the community. It's how you relate to the community. It's how you are with the community. And, and you can't separate yourself out from the community. You can't become a fortress or a faceless entity or uh, an organization that people don't know who you are or they don't know your staff. And we, can't, we have to personalize who we are. And so and it's critically important that police departments find people to do this work that are predisposed to liking being in relationship and connecting with other people. And we just, and I don't care who that is. I mean, it can be, it can be grade school, middle school, high school people. It can be senior elder people. It can be business people. It can be faith community. It can be community organizers, activist groups, um, advocacy groups, uh, churches, you, know, you name it. It's got to be everybody and everything. And we're, we're, uh, we have to be a very, very, I'll just use the term intimate part of a community. We have mm-hmm. to be. 
-hmm. People have to know who we are, what we do, why we do it. They have to be invited in. We, we've done a lot of work over the years of making it clear that this community guides who we are. Mm -hmm. We're a factor of what this community wants to see. Um, we have done a lot to invite community into our midst in so many different ways to help us develop policy, help us develop procedure, to be a part of processes that are really kind of, in many cities, are rather mysterious uh, and yeah. last bastions of, of, you can't know what this is. For instance, um, you know, you guys know what personnel and you know what personnel issues are, you know to what level those are held in strictest confidence in most industries and businesses across, even in a lot of government. But in police, we open that wide open. We have citizens who review all of our issues around personnel allegations of misconduct. And they not only, I mean, they review our, our work, they review our investigations, they look at them and say, this isn't good enough, or this is good enough. Or they, and they can say, you know, if it's good enough, you know, what should happen? Should the officer, should the allegation be uh, sustained? Should that, should, should we say that the officer actually did it or didn't do it or unfounded or exonerated? So we've gone to the point where my point here is that community engagement and community involvement within your own organization is what can set you apart I mean, actually, maybe it's, it's what sets us apart from other police departments, but yeah. it's what keeps that sense of honesty and transparency as alive as it can possibly be. Hey, Mike, uh, okay. Mike, go ahead. I can interrupt real quickly. Can I, can interrupt can I, ask, can I ask you, um, where did you come in as a law and order officer long ago, or did you find enlightenment and restorative justice along the way, or... You know, how did, how did you evolve in your, in your journey, if you will? Well, that gets more personal. And that's the, that you're asking a very personal question. This isn't a professional question. I'm willing to answer that, but I just want, want you to know that that's, that's how I perceive that question. So um, I'm just going to let you know that where I come from in my life is that, you know, I think we have 7 billion brothers and sisters on this planet and, and um, we're all bound by a creative loving source and, and we're here for each other. And, um, and, and if you really truly believe that, then you have to believe that, you know, you're, you're going to treat people the way you want to be treated and you're going to want to operate from the, perspective that everyone everyone's life is is important their their voice counts their thoughts matter their humanness maybe most importantly should be very valued and so you know i grew up that way and kind of evolved more into that and and so that kind of background that kind of my own way of seeing the world and everybody else kind of guides how I operate, manage, and lead our police department. And by the way, that includes being that way with every one of our staff and modeling that in a way that hopefully that they will go out into the community and model what what I'm I'm trying to model for them. Right. So that's a personal question. 
And I got a lot more to that in terms of my own evolution as a human being. But I think you get the gist of. No, I, I appreciate that, Mike. I think we're all on a journey and some of us more than others, that's for sure. And I think Brady might have a, another question here for you. So. Yeah, I, I just have to say that I, I really enjoy the, um, the community aspect of the, the policing. The, you know, being a part of the community is, is just so important. Um, I know that other um, areas in the country will, will purposefully move officers around to um, sort of take that out of there. And I think that's so tragic. So I'm just, I, I love that about this. And I, I, um, I'm wondering then too, like what kind of programming beyond that, like what are the things that you start that you think are having a big impact? Like what's, what have you done? I mean, I know that you've done stuff. I can see this. Well, first of all, yeah, thanks Brady. Yeah. Let me, let me just back that question up a little bit and, and talk about how over the years, decades, how the criminal justice system has become phenomenally way too prominent mm. in our society in terms of uh, being used as a solution for our social and health issues. And by that, I mean, I don't, you know, every time we come up with a social issue or many of our health issues, there's a lot of elected officials at a lot of levels that like to pass a lot of bills and, and pass a lot of legislation to try to solve that issue. And every time that happens, what, what, people don't understand. And these are the same legislators that are saying, we got to hold, we got to kind of minimize what the police are doing now, right now and today. These are the same legislators that have said, we need to pass laws to fix these issues, perhaps unwittingly invoking the criminal justice system. And so when these health and social issues manifest themselves in some kind of human behavior that they criminalized, guess who gets called? Guess who? Guess who gets the the who has to answer the bell in terms of responding to these things? And so, what happens is when you invoke the criminal justice system and the police have to go, you know, we're being kind of set up to to deal with these health and social issues in a way that doesn't do anybody any favors, and I can guarantee it doesn't solve or or any of these health and social issues, like issues related to addiction, issues related to mental health residuals of homelessness. A lot of cities, a lot of states have tried to solve these issues or residuals of these issues by passing laws and invoking and mandating that the criminal justice system be used to try to solve those issues. I hope that's, I hope that's clear for you because that's context right. for why we did what we did in Longmont. And so you know, and so that's why we're law enforcers. We go out and enforce those laws. And, and, and what happens also, the other kind of factor in play here is that where we end up are our neighborhoods where there's a lot of folks, most of them across America, the vast majority of policing operates in neighborhoods where people are economically disadvantaged or socially marginalized or disenfranchised. And so here we are, we're set up as the enforcers of these laws that are trying to solve social and health issues in neighborhoods and communities that don't have a lot of options other than to call the police. If you had health insurance, if you had the wherewithal, if you had opportunity for treatment, if you weren't homeless, you know, you're not, you're, you, you, you have options. You don't call the police, but a lot of people do. And so we get called into these and I would have to say Longmont's not unique. This is true in Minneapolis. It's true in Los Angeles. 
that the vast majority of things we handle as police are related to probably three or four health and social issues mm-hmm. um, that have as the basis of them addiction, mental health, homelessness, poverty. And so all of those things are in play. And so all these laws have been passed over the years, over the decades to say, we're gonna solve the war on drugs. The war on drugs is a great example of human behavior, addiction, um, and what happened in the war on drugs, especially in the criminal justice system, is that we built large armies of police departments all over the country, and then a large apparatus of prisons to deal with the war on drugs. Right. And that kind of set the tone and kind of set the environment and the culture for how we were going to operate with the war on drugs. So right. and it <laughs> kind of seems like they, um, they decided we're going to have all of these new issues that the police will respond to, but didn't necessarily equip um, with, with the right tools to do that. Um, sort of the, when, when all you've got is a hammer. Well, no, and you know what? And let me just say this, Brady. Here's where I'm going to go with this. That's context for what your question is. So the answer to your question is, over the years, the things that we've done are things like restorative justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have referred over 6,000 people to the Law Community Justice. Yeah, 6,000. Instead of arresting people, we, we referred them to restorative justice. Recidivism rate in the criminal justice system, 50 to 70%. And the restorative justice system, less than five. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, I could go into a lot, a lot of that if you want me to, I will. We've also done uh, I do think like, that there's like, uh, for people who are listening, might not be apprised of the, the things that you're actually doing when they're out there. Because restorative justice, um, and I'm very familiar with Longmont Community Justice community Partnership, justice. They, they take and... Um, somebody comes in and they work with the, the harm parties and they work through a contract and a circle process in order that everybody feels like they're restored and can go back to their communities and be accepted and forgiven and that they could reintegrate so that they don't feel like they're shunned and pushed back out. Um, that's an excellent thing. And I, you know, I feel free to speak about any of the other specifics that you. Well, you let know. me just say real quickly, I, I think a, a critical part, two critical parts for restorative justice. Number one, offenders get to safely choose accountability. It's not forced, demanded, or legislated upon them. Mm-hmm. Huge in terms of sustainable, sustaining their own sense of accountability. Number two, the victim's voice becomes a centerpiece. In the criminal justice system, the victims, there's no legal provision for the victim's voice. And mm-hmm. so when you have the person who did the harm and the person who was harmed come together and all of those dynamics begin to happen, relationships begin to um, begin to become more healthy, integration back into the community can occur, some sense of responsibility is, is, um, is much higher than it was. Um, you, have, you have people who are choosing not to commit crimes anymore, and you have victims that are actually uh, feeling like they're more healed as a result of that. So mm-hmm. it's a pretty dynamic but very logical process that has worked well. So, and, and Mike, I want to interject. I think it saves money too. So, if you're a, if you're somebody who's really heady on on finances, it saves money. Restorative justice saves money. Well, huge. I mean, it's let's face it. I mean, let me just give you an example of what saves money. So, a few years ago, we did a, uh, a research project uh, within Longmont where we had our research and development unit look at um, 
a few hundred people that committed uh, felony crimes like vandalism, burglary, car break-ins. When we went back and looked at their histories, we found out that on average, they had been arrested nine times prior to that year. Mm. So not only does it save money, it keeps people from being re-victimized, restorative justice. And if you have to deal with someone 10 times, how much more expensive is that than having to deal just with them once? Mm-hmm. And so the money, the money calculation, the efficiency and effect, the efficiency is hugely there with the fact that you deal with people a lot less. And by the way, fewer people are victimized when you use restorative justice on the front end versus the criminal justice system. And so, so efficiency and effectiveness are had. So anyway, you know, I, I have actually given day-long classes on restorative justice to the police department. <laughs> sure, we could talk about I'll, it. For... I'll leave it at that. Yeah. So other things that we've done with. Uh, addiction, for instance. I think you're aware, I think you're aware of this, Eric. A few years ago, we started this initiative called the Angel Initiative. Mm-hmm. If anybody is struggling with a chemical substance addiction, in our community, we only work with people from our community. If you come down, walk through our doors and say, I got an addiction, bring your drugs, bring your paraphernalia. We'll take your drugs, we'll take your paraphernalia, we'll destroy it, we'll get rid of it, and we will find you addiction treatment. Mm-hmm. And we've done that with somewhere between 250 and 300 people so far. Yeah. And I'm talking expensive, sometimes seven month to one year residential treatment. We have uh, agreements and assessment and access um, with over 100 different addiction treatment service providers who have agreed to provide us in Longmont free treatment for those people who are walking through our door so oh, wow. there's, a, there's a little cognitive dissonance to go down to the police department to deal with your addiction <laughs> but the fact of the matter is you can and we're no and we are a community now i'm very very proud to say that regardless of whether or not you have insurance or financial wherewithal and you know before i just talked about economically disadvantaged people that don't but if you don't have insurance or if you don't have the economic wherewithal you can still find addiction treatment yeah. So we've literally leveraged several million dollars worth of free treatment for people in this community. And by the way, that does not cost the city budget a dime. No, that's amazing. It's yeah. amazing. It I know cost- you're a benefactor of, uh, I think, some significant national dollars there, too, if I'm not mistaken. So for that. Program, so we've yeah. we've uh, we've actually we have gotten that that actually that actually belongs to a couple of other programs I'm about ready to talk about. Um, but it's not, we haven't gotten any grant. We've gotten $5,000 in grant money. Oh, okay. That. Sorry, forgive and I, me. And, it, yeah. and that was a local grant. So the other two, though, um, programs I'm about ready to talk about here are, one is LEAD, the Law Enforcement Assistant Diversion. It is a program to deal with folks who are struggling with addiction, but are not necessarily ready for treatment. There's a harm reduction model that we just meet people where they're at. And these are people who have committed crimes in our community. And so instead of arresting them, most likely for a felony, we, we offer them another path of being able to deal with their addiction. Uh, and we do a lot of different things in terms of helping them find housing, helping them find treatment if they can't get it, helping them trying to kind of rethink and rewire their own lives in a way. But mm-hmm. here, the other, I'm going to mention another program, but this is versus arresting people, by the way. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, in the war on drugs, we arrested people left and right for uh, addiction-related crimes, or having, or, or frankly, having um, 
And a lot of those people that committed those, by the way, those car break-ins and burglaries that I talked about in terms of seeing them so many times, were struggling with addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, the other program that I'm talking about now is CORE. That's a co-responder program. Same thing, same dynamics and concept, but it's for folks struggling with their mental health. So if someone's struggling with their mental health, commits a crime, we look for every way possible not to arrest them. We try to figure out a way to find their services. But there is a common denominator here, guys, that becomes very important about who we are as a police department. Our role in the community is to, especially with folks struggling with addiction and mental health, is to do our best to create a really good relationship with this person. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when we deal with people who are addicted or who are struggling with their mental health, it's not unusual for us to find people who have been abandoned by families, by friends, by coworkers, by congregations, and even by addiction treatment or mental health service providers. Oftentimes we get calls from mental health and addiction treatment service providers, call the police and say, can you send your leader core people out to deal with somebody? Because there's a crisis. And frankly, you won't find a social worker or a mental health or addiction treatment service provider who's willing to go to someone's location when they are in serious crisis and right. there's a safety issue. Right. They'll call the yeah. police. Well, yeah. here's what the police do. We now send clinicians. We now send case managers. They all work under public safety. That was that division I was talking about, the division of community health and resiliency, where now public safety has mental health workers, addiction treatment service providers, clinicians and case managers and paramedics, that all, we, all they do is respond to calls um, that are related to addiction and mental health versus a patrol officer who has some training but not near as much. Right. And so, and so the effectiveness of that has been phenomenal. And just to give you an idea, our suicide rates and our suicide ideation attempt rates have always gone up in this community over the years. This year, they're down almost 50%. Oh, it's that's fantastic, Mike. Phenomenal, yeah. phenomenal yeah. figure that we really give a lot of credit to our core people for. That's that Actually, it's really striking considering um, what I've seen in data elsewhere about uh, crisis call line numbers are, are through the roof with unemployment and COVID, and uh, people are really worried about substance abuse relapse for the same reason. So that's, that's a profound number. You know, it's, it would be great if we didn't have to deal with the issues we have to deal with related to COVID. But I'm, I'm thinking, I'm very thankful and grateful that we now have a couple of programs that really are founded in healthy relationships. Because yeah. here's what we will hear from people. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's an emotional thing for us to hear this, but it's, it happens a lot. And that is, the only friend I have is this police officer. Yeah. Mm. The only wow. friend I have is the person who came and, and, and not only that, we do a lot of follow-up. Police officers are constantly knocking on their doors and saying, listen, I'm here to help you. Um, and you know, sometimes there's this tough love thing going on. You ain't gonna do that anymore. I'm gonna stay with you until you get over it. We're gonna figure out how to get you. I mean, you're aware of those dynamics. That's what our police officers do now, folks. And so when you hear that the only friend they have is a cop, you know, yeah, that's that's good. really sad. So, Mike, one of the things I'm wondering is 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 this 
is, is what you do in Longmont, because I tell so many people across the country about how proud I am of our, of you and, and the work you do and your departments. And is it transferable to other communities? Can we, can we make this happen across the country? Without an if, and, or but. And what you don't know um, is that I've been asked, I go out and I speak all over the country and yeah. around these things. Yeah. And I've uh, done a lot of work in other communities that are wanting to do, find alternatives. And you know, like I said before, to the criminal justice system, I started off with the criminal justice system has become way too prominent. The difference in Longmont policing is we've made it a lot less prominent mm -hmm. as we've developed different mechanisms and structures to deal with these social and health issues that do require police officers because they're safety issues when we initially go. And, but these are police officers that, you know, they're, 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 they're becoming because they're so, these special police officers, because they're so intertwined with folks struggling with addiction and mental health, they become experts at it in terms of working with it. So it is, and you know, this isn't, there's an economy of scale. I mean, New York City has what, eight, nine million people. They got 40,000 cops. Um, we've got 160 cops in Longmont. But I've actually had, I've actually been invited to conferences to speak to. I spoke to the Los Angeles uh, Police Department. I actually spoke to the New York Police Chief and his two uh, deputy chiefs. I've spoken to people in Chicago. Um, and well, so, related to this, I, I'm curious because I was, I've been wondering, as Longmont grows, do you think that we'll have issues maintaining this model? Or do you think that there would be a translation error stepping up to, I mean, a city with eight or nine million people? Okay, well, we'll never be eight or nine million, but not, I not us, but, <laughs> but getting this, getting this launched somewhere like Minneapolis, which has, um, by, by all accounts, I am trying to get on the horn right now with the mayor of Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. I am actually trying to have a conversation with him because this is very, very you know, we're, we're not talking about small town program. We're talking human nature. We're talking mm -hmm. the human condition. That exists in Longmont, it exists in Minneapolis, it exists in New York. It's a question of frequency and size. It's mm -hmm. not a question of the, what the human condition is. The human condition is the same. And so, and, and let me just tell you this, and I don't know if you remember the person we brought in a few months ago. Um, his name was Dr. Bruce Perry. Yeah, yeah. And, and basically, he's a neuroscientist and a, and a psychiatrist and I've gotten to know him, and, and, uh, and actually he came in and basically talked about what we need to do differently around dealing with mental health and, mm -hmm. um, and addiction kinds of issues. And we are, our programs are based in literally hundreds of thousands of people database that um, uh, Dr. Bruce Perry has formed in terms of what works. And so, so it's a... Um, this database applies everywhere that what mm -hmm. he did, the research, the neuroscience research that he did on the brain applies to all brains, not just brains in small town, small cities. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, the answer to the question, very transferable, very doable. That's the kind of reform police needs to start thinking about mm -hmm. in terms of recalibrating, rethinking and redoing what they're doing because most police departments in Minneapolis was clearly one and there's thousands of others are all geared around this enforcement role. Like I said mm -hmm. earlier, they're geared towards that. They call themselves law enforcement. 
And so, and that's their, their hiring, their recruitment, their training, their, the architecture of their organization, management, leadership, supervision, performance uh, management processes are all designed around enforcement. Well, what if you began to change all of those systems, structures, and processes, and you began to manage and lead in a way that brought around a different role that police could have in a mm -hmm. community? So we have 800 to 900,000 cops in this country. There's no doubt in my mind, and you've been, you know about this blowing revolution, but there's no doubt in my mind that the police could be, um, they could help develop um, the social fabric of community, and they could certainly be a part of, of surfacing and activating the social capital of community. Well, I sure hope that you can get um, get in contact with, is it Mayor Fry, Minneapolis? Yeah, it is. Yeah, um, I, I, I understand that they recently chose to, or they, they voted to dissolve the, the MPD. Well, it's right now uh, it's all talk. There's not been okay. any vote. Um, I'm sure there's going to be lots of discussion. Yeah. I think where that's headed, though, uh, Brady is toward, and Eric is towards uh, a reimagining of what mm -hmm. can happen mm -hmm. differently with public safety. And there's models out there that you can have that, and, and like, let me just say this too, because we've criminalized so much of human behavior, and I'm not just blaming us on Minneapolis, the police, the, the elected officials who choose to pass laws to try to solve these issues. If we, if we pull back some of these laws, and if we stop developing other laws and develop other ways of doing business, that would change the role of police. It would change cultures and police departments. It would actually minimize the size of police departments and community and communities. And if you could develop more social capital in a community, that would also minimize the enormity of police departments in these communities. And so there are a lot of things you can do to reimagine what a community does, mm -hmm. not just what the police does. Agreed. That can have direct yeah. impact on what a police department does what it does and how it does it and who it is. So Mike, I, I want to, I need to be respectful of your time, but I wanted to ask Thank you me. one kind of final question. And if you yeah. want to include some other thoughts, but um, you know, I and others in the community have been wondering if <laughs> there's a, a book in Mike Butler's future, if there's a way that you have codified this and put it down on paper for other communities to benefit and I know you're a kind of like you go out there and you want to you want to talk to other departments and have been invited with uh, other communities and such. Will that work continue? What are your plans um, after? Well, uh, you know, it's OK. So here's another personal question. When you're around as long as I've been managed in humanity demand, notwithstanding what I think I have going on inside of me as a way of resilience that, that keeps me resilient. Um, there's still, my immediate plan is to figure out how to heal a little bit mm -hmm. and, and how to kind of, there's something inside of me that I want something else. I want something else to come out of me that hasn't been able to come out given the work that I've been doing for 40 some years, if that makes any sense at all. Mm -hmm. Um, so I want to do that, but in terms of writing, yes, I've written a lot already. People haven't seen it. I've written lots of pieces over the years, and I am in the process now of inventory and categorizing and putting a lot of things together. I got a few people who have um, said they'd be happy to edit. 
Um, but there's a, there's a spiritual component here too that I want to get into. There's a very much a spiritual realm that I want to enter into. I, I do. That's where I think the next part of my life will take me. But before I go there, I, I want to write a little bit about this and, and um, be able to, we'll see where it goes. Um, I'm done with fanfare. I'm done with, I want to kind of sink back into the woodwork a little bit and uh, enjoy my life, enjoy the people I love, travel, and then let my head clear up um, and uh, become a little bit more balanced in my life because this job, it, it's a wear and tear on one's soul and psyche. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are. It's a wear and tear. And so I want to kind of take some time to take care of myself for a while. Well, and you, I would say you deserve it. From the entire community, we thank you for your service. And um, I have just been honored to know you and we'll look for you, forward to hearing from you in, in other venues. But um, thank right. you so much for joining us, Mike. We appreciate You're it. You're welcome, Eric. Nice meeting you, Brady. Thank you, Mike. Take care. All right. So we're, uh, I think that was just awesome to hear from him and learn yeah. about, you know, Longmont. And I think the thing that was, is really great about Longmont is just how it differentiates itself from other communities. Yeah. I think, it's, uh, when you, when you hear about all of the, the drama that's been unfolding and drama is probably way too light of a word for the people that are living it. Um, you, you really grow to respect what we have here even more. Um, yeah. because I mean, I lived in Minneapolis and you did too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, so my heart really goes out to that city. Um, I, I love Minneapolis. I think it's a beautiful place with amazing people and everything that's going on up there now is just more than, than any, any community should have to deal with. Um, I, I hope that they can adopt some similar model to what we have in the future, whether that's rebuilding from the ground up or, or working with what they've got. Um, Cause they're great people that deserve it. Um, and we're just really lucky to have what we have here, I think. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, um, I definitely don't want to make light of and think that everything's perfect here. It's certainly not. We have a right. lot of, we have a lot to move through. And again, as somebody of privilege, I mean, it's who is it up to me to like tell everybody else, like how woke I am or how woke everybody else should be. And um, right. we're all kind of on a journey in this and, you know, it's time for us to, to kind of move forward as a country and that's going to be difficult. And yeah, uh, yeah. but um, yeah, I, I think you and I, <laughs> Share, uh, it was really uh, pretty pretty difficult to look at Hennepin County and in Minneapolis to see yeah. that happen. And it was. It's been really both have, both have been there. That's what's yeah. even more difficult. So it's been it's been a, a tough scene. I've I've watched more of this than I want to have yeah. watched, and it's it's been really hard to just watch these different pieces unfold and to see how dramatic it's gotten. How I mean, there, there's there's too much to go into, and I, it, we can accidentally dive into politics we get into this too long but, <laughs> well, um, and i don't want us to sound like we're we're all knowing either so no we're not but it, it is it's just a struggle and i mean they, we of course we've got places where we can improve and there are voices that are still not being heard and i would very much like to see improvements made continuously just because you have a good thing doesn't mean there's not room for improvement oh of course yeah um but in these other cities it's just you know i, I wish them the best i wish everybody to stay strong um so, yeah. And, you know, in uh, that respect, I don't really know if there's really else we need to say other than, you know, we're just grateful to have Mike on. And again, you know, usually we talk about kind of the buzz around Longmont as well as the events, but, you know, Brady, we 
don't really have too many events going on these days. No, no. Um, <laughs> so. We could talk about the the derecho that came through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I guess like yeah. 15,000 people are out of power, so Woo. more cheery news, right? Well, I guess, you know, you probably could talk about the weather too as well. That's what uh, I'm talking about, the weather right now. That's literally what I'm doing. <laughs> oh, okay. But I, I, I didn't hear you say the weather, but no, I, no, no, I no, guess. No. There, was a, there was a big, it's called a derecho, apparently. It, it has to be like 50 miles wide and uh, some 100 miles long. And, okay. then, and then, yeah, so there was these sustained winds of over 60 miles an hour. There's very specific criteria. It's extremely rare to get one of these things here. They're, they're more common further to the east. And that's what all the winds were on Saturday. Is well, we're like, supposed to have a, like a really intense windstorm tonight. So it'll be interesting. Oh boy. Yeah. More trees this is exciting. Down. We've, More we've really devolved into like really nothingness. So it's, it's kind of funny, but, um, well, hey, you need to have a little transition out of, that's I mean, right. It is like that. exactly. It's, it's really, it's really pretty heavy. That's for sure. So, um, well, should we call it? Let's call it. All right. So let's see if I can cue up music here. For the week, um, who we got? This is from Fox Feather, I think. I think I stepped on it last time, so we'll just replay it again this time. But it's "Come and Get Me," and um, we are uh, ever so grateful to have Mike Butler here today, and uh, we are always grateful for Andy Epler for our intro music. Um, thanks to Fox Feather. Uh, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you download your pod content. Reach out to us at info at sidedishlongmont.org. Yeah, and uh, go smash that like button. Cracking and the beam is breaking. I close my eyes, but I can't escape the world. Closets are empty. Oh, my clothes are filthy.